0: And then the plan was to go back to Cuba, but just I was getting ready back to Cuba, the CIA invaded Cuba, the Bay of Pigs. uh, And uh, they, uh, uh, going back to Cuba was impossible, so I went to Puerto Rico for eight years. And it was there, I was there when the Second Vatican Council met, and all kinds of things began developing.
1: Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. One of my favorite historians on the Christian faith is Justo Gonzalez. You may know him from his many books that he's written. Uh, Perhaps you've read his his two-volume work, The Story of Christianity, or his larger work, The History of Christian Thought. But uh, Dr. Gonzalez has written on not just the, the whole range of... Christianity, and it's the history of the church, but he's also authored books on a number of specific subjects. Uh, with that said, uh, let me just say uh, to you, Husto, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, be with you and to be heard by your listeners. Um, I am afraid that that. Uh, great uh, introduction you have given me would be uh, uh, contradicted by the actual conversation. But anyhow, <laughs> I, I'm proud. <laughs> I'm grateful for it. Thank you. Well, <laughs>
2: b- before we, we get into uh, your, your historical work, maybe we should just begin uh, with your background. Uh, every theologian, every historian, their, their background actually plays a significant role in, in the topics they choose to write on. The, the theological controversies that they they uh, are articulate and how they articulate them, and that is, that's been the case with you. Uh, maybe you could just tell us about uh, your background in the Hispanic community. Uh, our, our listeners may not know this, but you know I've mentioned some of the books that you've written in English, but you've also published uh, many many books in Spanish as well uh how has uh, How has your upbringing and your cultural upbringing influenced uh your life as a as a historian
0: well i don't know where to begin and how much time you have, but let me tell you, <laughs> I was born in Cuba over eighty years ago, and i was born I was very fortunate to be born into a family where books and words, language were fundamental. Uh, my mother was a professor of uh, Spanish literature. My father was a novelist and the editor of a newspaper. Another uncle who spent a lot of time with us was a copy editor. And another uncle who for a while lived with us uh, was uh, a, uh, a writer of uh, uh, commercial ads. So <laughs> language was one of the things that was always a matter of uh, interest to us. And uh, fortunately, at that time, it was too early for television. So after dinner, we would all sit around the table and talk about things. And half of the times our discussion would end up in, is this the way to say something? Is this correct? Or what about that poem that so-and-so wrote and all that kind of thing? Behind my father, there was a, a sideboard that had a Bible and the Dictionary of the Academy the Spanish Academy of Language and the grammar of the Spanish Academy of Language. And very often, we ended up putting those things and talking about. That was growing up. I, w- I also was very fortunate because my mother was the principal of a school that was really way beyond our means, was a private school. Public education in Cuba was very bad. This was a private school It was way beyond our means because it was mostly a student, I mean, a, a school for uh CEOs of, all of big corporations, both Cuban and immigrants, mostly from the United States and from uh, Britain. And so um, the school was a, a bilingual in the real sense. In other words, we have one session, uh, the whole morning session was in English and the whole afternoon session was in Spanish. And so uh, we grew up uh, uh, really in, in both languages and somehow trying to work through both languages. And then in, in third grade, we started taking French. And by the time we finished in my primary school, we were having classes not about French, but in French. So so all of that uh, is part of that background. Uh, now, I was born in Protestant, it's not a long story, but my parents were both Methodist. And uh, it was a time when there was great controversy in Cuba, all over the world, but particularly in Latin America, between uh, Catholics and Protestants. Uh, I remember whenever I told somebody that I was a Protestant, uh, most of them will um, make the sign of the cross on themselves and, and not talk to me anymore. So it was, a, it was an interesting time uh, with a great deal of the zeal for witnessing, but at the same time, a great enmity among uh, between Protestants and Catholics. Mm. Uh, now, uh, I, I went to seminary in Cuba, I studied at the University of Cuba, Havana, then went to the seminary in Cuba. When I graduated, I came to study, mostly because the church commanded I was Methodist. At that point, Methodist went where the bishop went, when the bishop told you. And I was told to come and study in the States, and I came to Yale, and uh, did my PhD there, and finished in 61, so that's uh, quite a few years ago. And then I, I was, the plan was to go back to Cuba, but just as so I was getting ready back to Cuba, the CIA invaded Cuba, the Bay of Pigs, uh, and uh, they uh, uh, the, going back to Cuba was impossible. So I went to Puerto Rico for eight years. And it was there, I was there when the Second Vatican Council met and all kinds of things began developing. Because of my own interest, I was very much interested in medieval theology and the only library there that I had uh, quite a bit of uh, sources for that, pe- for that period was the Dominican School of Theology. So I became very good friends with the Dominicans there, and so things began to change. Uh, then I came to this country, uh, I mean to the U.S. in 69, and I've been here ever since. Uh, first teaching, uh, working with uh, various Latino groups, and uh, by the late 70s, uh, the the pressure on all denominations, Catholic and Protestant, to deal with Latino issues was such that I was spending all my time uh, really being a resource person for most of those denominations. And uh, ever since, that's what I've been doing. I've been doing material work for Latinos, Latinas in in their own education, leadership training, and so on. And also writing uh, when I'm not doing those things. Mm. Uh, I suppose that's more background that you wanted to have, but that's uh, <laughs> That's
2: what it is. <laughs> you know, your your background is so important here. Uh, maybe you could uh, connect the dots for us between uh, your background in the Latino community to uh, a recent book that you wrote called "The Mestizo Augustine: A Theologian Between Two Cultures." Um, this may be a book that surprises some people because they've never considered uh, Augustine from this vantage point. So so how how has uh, your your background coming out of Cuba, how, how has that influenced, say, the way you read someone like Augustine and his own controversies?
0: Well, uh, if we go back to what I was saying at the beginning, uh, growing up in Cuba, uh, that in the household in which I was growing up, and with the enmity between Catholics and Protestants, I was very much rather right the centre of things when it came to uh, literary culture and, and, and traditions and all that, but very much at the edge when it to, came to religious matters. Uh, so in many ways, I almost had uh, uh, one foot in, in the culture and one foot in a an understanding of Christianity that had been brought from outside that eventually had its own, developed its own roots in Cuba, but still reflected a great deal of the culture from which it had come, which was basically the US. And uh, that already, I suppose, as I look back at it, that's the sort of mestizaje that I was a minority there, not because of race or ethnicity or culture, but mostly because of religion convictions. Then I came to the States and I discovered that I again was a minority. But now I'm no longer a minority as a Protestant, as a minority, uh, uh, as a Cuban or as Latino. And so the, 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 when Latinos began reflecting, it was about the same time we're reflecting on the issue of mestizaje and what that means and so on. Uh, but mestizaje is a word that is uh, really uh, means a being of mixed races, mixed traditions, mixed cultures. Um, when, when that began in developing, I, I fell right into it because I was a, uh, helped me understand who I was. Now, when I began reading Augustine, uh, I mean, I, I, I studied Augustine, I took the courses, long courses in Augustine where I was at Yale, I read, but it never dawned on me until I began looking at Augustine through this other uh, perspective that Augustine himself has something of similar experience. We always think about him as a great theologian of Europe. Well, he wasn't a European, he was African. Mm. He was born in North Africa. As a matter of fact, just about all uh, early Christian theology until the late 4th century in Latin was written uh, in North Africa rather than in Italy or in Rome or, or Europe. Um, so I began looking at Augustine now and seeing uh, the struggles that he went through. I mean, he himself was, his mother was uh, African, uh, probably of Numidian uh, descent, and his father was Roman, and uh, uh, his mother wanted him Uh, to be uh, part of that culture that his father represented because that was the the culture of the elite and this was the basis of power and so on. But at the same time, she wanted him to follow her religion, which was a Christianity that was very much shaped by uh, North African conditions, by by the Medians. And so uh, his struggle in the early years was not just uh, between faith and not faith. That wasn't it. It was really more between the faith of his mother and the culture of his father. And then you can read all, all of his life and see how those uh, those conflicts continue throughout his life and helped him in many ways uh, to find uh, uh, ways uh, to deal with problems that were different than many others at the same time who were not, did not have the fortune that he had of being bicultural and biracial.
2: Mm. You know, when I th- think of uh, Augustine's uh, many controversies, he's he's just such a, a massive theologian in hindsight, right? Because he he enters into some of the most important controversies that would define the church not only in his day but the days ahead. Uh, but you're right, this uh, his background, um, what, what you've called this mixed background between African and Roman, due to his parents. Uh, This certainly does affect him in all kinds of ways. Uh, When we think of uh, his controversies, you think, for example, how he struggled with Manichaeanism uh, early on and and then came out of that uh, and and entered into uh, Christianity, but but also his controversies, say the Donatist controversy or the Pelagian controversy. Uh, we don't have to discuss all of these but but maybe you could just touch for a second uh maybe maybe if it's just one of these controversies how how would you say how how has his how how did his uh background this this mixed background affect his insight um as well as his conclusions in any any particular controversy
0: well let's look at the Trump controversy which in many ways was uh, very close to him because before he was born, most of his family were donatists. And they had become uh, what was then called Catholic Christians, meaning uh, members, I mean, people in connection, in communion with the rest of the church. Uh, most of his uh, his relatives had changed uh, into the larger church just the time before he was born. And he still had relatives who were donatists for a long time. Uh, well, he was writing this. Well, he's not talking about abstract things. He's talking about an experience and what's happening in North Africa. Uh, well, first of all, there's the, the the social element that he hardly mentions. But in North Africa, the uh, what they call the Punic population, was the way the Romans called the Africans, the Punic population was... Uh, uh, obviously, subject or below the the, the social stratification below the Romans, and uh, uh, the government uh, was Roman. And while certain Romans were persecuted in the church, many many uh, North Africans became Christian, and uh, the the, the population was a stronghold of Christianity. And then suddenly, the emperor, the empire becomes Christian. And uh, now these people who were a minority uh, because of religion now find themselves in the majority, but they find that the church has been taken over by the Romans, and that's part of the conflict that's going on there. And that's something that we have to take into account as we look at that debate. It's not just a, a, a theological issue. It's, you have all these other issues going on. Now, as to Augustine himself, um, it, I think that there, there's a a great contrast between the way that the Romans understood authority and the words, the way that the Numidians understood authority. Among Romans, authority did not belong to the person, but to the office. So if you had a certain position in the government, obviously, if you were inefficient, you might be fired. But as long as you had that position, you had that authority. Uh, among the Numidians, as in many other peoples of the world, uh, authority was given by efficiency, uh, which might be physical power, it might be good leadership, whatever. But but once the the, the chief, the leader, uh, uh, falls short to what they are expected to be, they are no longer the leader. And so that in one case, uh, uh, law, in the case of the Romans, Law is the main thing. In the case of the Africans, what's important is uh, action. How do you perform in that position? Well, part of what happens in, in the Donatist controversy is that the Africans, uh, uh, the, the Donatists, begin saying, well, you know, all of these uh, uh, supposedly good Christians who uh, did not uh, uh, hold firm during the times of persecution all of these people of Roman descent were in connection with them. All of them uh, have lost their authority. They are no longer the, the real leaders of the church. leaders of the church are the people who stood firm during the times of persecution. That is basically what he does, he says. And what Augustine tends to say is just a moment, we have authorities, and we, we can obviously, we can uh, depose, correct, judge those authorities, however, but, uh, but as long as they are the authority, they are the ones, that provide the connection, the the system to which we all belong. So in that case, he takes the African side, he takes the Roman side over against his own African uh, neighbors. Mm. Then you come to the Pelagian controversy, and it's exactly the opposite, because the Pelagians are saying this, because law is so important. God is a just God, and therefore God rewards and God punishes according to what you do and so on. And Augustine says, no, just a moment. To say that God has to be just is to put justice above God. Well, we understand that justice as being something that we then put on God. No, but God is the one who determines what is just. And therefore, if God decides to save us by sheer grace. That is who God is. And that is what justice is. And I think that he does that because now he is taking the other side. He's taking the the... the uh, African side, where, where the authority is a very different thing than it was in the Roman side. Now, that's putting everything in a very short nutshell, but that's basically yeah. an, an example.
2: It's it's so telling, isn't it? Because uh, in one sense, uh, Augustine is in a unique position where he's able to address these controversies because he has that background. Uh, and that's you, right. You just, you you wonder... Uh, if, if he didn't have that background, uh, if he, if he didn't have that African and Roman backgrounds, uh, pr- whether he would have been able to, um, to, to clarify and even to, even, you know, on the one hand sympathize, but yet, uh, land on a position that, uh, w- was able to then critique the other side. Uh, it, it also shows that, uh, while he's influenced by his cultural background, um, He's not necessarily uh, determined by it. Uh, Augustine, on the one hand, like you just said, uh, on the one hand, he will side with the Africans, and the next side, uh, he, he turns to, to critique them. Uh, and, and so um, maybe you could speak for a moment here, just in your own life, uh, how do you capture that balance on the one hand between uh, your, your own upbringing, your own, your own cultural insight, and yet? At the same time, trying to, um, in a sense, like like you point out with Augustine, um, go back to to even the Bible itself and 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 theology and and understand. At times, you might you might have to give a critique.
0: Well, one of the things that you do is you keep in touch with many people different than you are and listen to them. Uh, one of the aspects of Augustine's uh, work that's least studied, studied is his correspondence. And I think if you look at his correspondence, you begin seeing his, his contact with people, with many of whom would, uh, he disagreed heartily, but eventually they worked together. I mean, I thinking about Jerome, uh, who wrote some very nasty things about him, uh, mostly because Jerome didn't think that he was Roman enough, and, and, and Augustine thought that Jerome was not biblical enough, even though Jerome was the best biblical scholar of his time. <laughs> but anyhow, but, but back, to, back to your subject, I think that not only was he uh, uh, poised uh, to uh, deal with those issues, but he also poised to deal with what nobody expected, which was the destruction that followed the Roman Empire. Mm. Uh, When the Roman Empire uh, fell, uh, most of the the, uh, Christian elite were flabbergasted. They didn't know what to make of this. Uh, the, the, The great city that had been there forever uh, had fallen. And they had learned to read history as uh, Eusebius uh, read it in the sense that God had always intended for the church and the empire to be together. And they were like, uh, God was bringing both of them to come together. And they have finally come together in Augustine. And now we have this great union of church and empire. And then suddenly the empire collapses. And uh, everybody is, Wondering what to do. And Augustine writes his, large, his largest work, The City of God, where he says all kinds of things, and I know very few people who read the whole thing, because it is really, he talks about everything under the sun, and even beyond. <laughs> but he, basically he's able to appreciate Roman culture, because that's the culture he grew up. Mm. And he can, he can breathe with his fellow Romans because the, the empire is no longer what it used to be because it, the, the the Germanic people have come and, and uh, sacked uh, Rome and so on and so on. But at the same time, he's able to say, you know, Rome is not God's final word. And he could he could stand and, and go back to the faith of his mother and to his own background to be able to say why God fell, why Rome fell, in a way that was not just. Uh, political, but also theological. Mm. And I think that that's crucial for us today because the church, the world is changing so much. Uh, in many of the countries that used to be the great bulwarks of Christianity are no longer bulwarks. And um, Some of them are beginning to lose power. There is there danger, I mean, a fear that people have that our country is not as great as it used to be, and uh, we have to just fix it. And I think the Augustine uh, will have said, "Well, yes, our country is great. We love it. We ought to love it. But remember that uh, our country is not God's final word." Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's something that we need to hear today very much.
2: Very sobering and such a such a helpful uh, correction and balance to maybe our knee jerk reaction to some of these issues today. Uh, I, I hope our listeners are are, are picking up on uh, the the underlying. Uh, thread here uh, of of how uh, someone like Augustine, uh, who lived so long ago in a in a culture so different from ours today, can speak volumes to some of the challenges we face today, whether it's in the church or in uh, in a culture. Uh, now, now, Husto, you've uh, you've written on Augustine, and y- your work on Augustine is is uh, one that uh, I keep returning to. But you've not only written on Augustine and, and the scope of of history itself. Uh, one of your more, uh, I, I think, it's it's uh, a book that uh, uh, I haven't heard uh, too much about, but I have found uh, so so insightful. Is your history of theological education? Uh, and, and maybe i 'm biased because I myself am a theological educator is a is a professor of theology, but uh this history is uh is eye opening uh, i I mention that because uh there's such a there 's such a difference i noticed and 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 as you you uh chronicle you know the early church the medieval period the Reformation period. Uh, there's such a, a difference then when you get to the modern era, and and how not only seminary is thought of, but but then how theology itself is is reconceived. Maybe before we get to that point, though, we could go back to, uh, back to uh, the Reformation period. You know, we've been talking about Augustine, of course, individuals like Luther or or John Calvin. They uh, they retrieved Augustine in many ways, especially as they were trying to. Uh, Articulate what they believe the Bible said about grace, for example. But uh, it, it, these same reformers had a, a, a very particular understanding of of church and academy. Uh, maybe you could just start by by describing uh, how they went back to the sources in light, in a day uh, in which uh, well, some people were illiterate. Uh, education was not something you could assume and uh, uh, on top of that the bible itself may or may not have been read uh by even those who were clergy uh what why what was happening uh during this turbulent time and and why are are these reformers uh why are they they saying back to the sources
0: how many hours do you have <laughs> 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 well, there, there, there are many things that are happening. I think one of the things that uh, there a couple of things that, that people usually don't realize how important they were for the Reformation that whole period. One was the fall of Constantinople. The church took Constantinople, and uh, all of the Greek scholars and the church scholars that they cool left and went to the to Western Europe, and and they went, to, brought their their books with them. And it became very apparent when when the people in the the West began reading the books of the people in the East had what they thought was the same book, that there have been changes that have uh, happened uh, through the centuries. I I mean, when you have a a system of, of publication where all you can do is just copy and copy from copies and copy from copies of copies, obviously changes are introduced in texts. And sometimes people make notes in the margin, that are their own comments, and when the next copy comes around, he thinks that that's part of the text, and so he puts it back in, and he puts it in. So uh, part of what happens is that the the West suddenly realizes that through the centuries of uh, this tradition of copying and copying and copying, changes have occurred. Uh, churches and changes that enter. Even in the in the New Testament, it was exactly the same thing that they thought it was in the other in the other cultures. So that's one thing. Now, now we have the only way that you can solve that is by a very painstaking process that's usually called textual criticism, where you take as many manuscripts as you can, you study them all, you try to determine uh, what were the backgrounds of each, or see what what um, the differences are, and then try to to get back to the very, very original text. That, really, if you're going to do that just so that somebody then goes ahead and copies and makes more mistakes, it's a a task of sisyphus. I mean, you're just going, rolling up the stone so it comes right back down the hill again. But then comes the printing press. And the printing press means that if somebody now uh, uh, works for years in a text, and this is as close to the original text as we can get. They can print several hundred copies with no mistakes, except anything that that particular person let that, that pass. But if you are very careful in your reading, you can produce a text that's much better than anything that was before. And in that case, it's worth spending all those years. And that's why in the uh, late 15th, especially in the 16th century, you get all of these people, who are trying to go back to the sources, not just people going back to the sources in scripture, in a vis-a-vis tradition, uh, in theology, but also going back to the sources in uh, in art, in in literature, in all kinds of fields, uh, so that, uh, well, including architecture, uh, so that you begin... Now, say we have to go back to the resources. And I think part of what happened in the Reformation is that the reformers, uh, even those who are not uh, humanists like some of the other scholars are, they are also influenced by that sense that somehow something happened in the way to the Forum, that something happened between when the New Testament was written and, and us today. Mm-hmm. And, and some of that may have been good, but there might be something also that has to be corrected. And so, uh, the Reformation is basically about that, about how do you correct those things. And the debates among the Reformers themselves are how far do you correct those things. Uh, do you get rid of anything that everything that's not in the Bible? Uh, do you accept uh, uh, anything that does not contradict the Bible? That's a different position, you see. Uh, mm. But all of that has to do with that sense of uh, uh, something has happened in the centuries just before us. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and interesting enough, very soon after that, people begin talking about those centuries as the Middle Ages, and the word Middle Ages themselves means something in between the the good times of the past and our good times. The past was enlightened, we are too, but in the middle there is this Middle Ages. You see, and actually they called architectural time Gothic, which actually meant barbaric. The Goths were barbarians. so. Uh, so they called that Gothic because it was not uh, sophisticated like the old Roman uh, Roman uh, architecture. So all of that fact was going on. I mean, you can see that in the Basilica of Saint Peter. The Basilica of Saint Peter uh, is not uh, is, is is very very different from the cathedrals of uh, well all the, the great cathedrals of the Middle Ages uh, uh, because it's really trying to go back to the old uh, Roman aesthetics. So you have that whole thing going on. Now, at the same time, all the questions you were asking about, uh, the learning. uh, Illiteracy was huge everywhere Mm. before the printing press, because there was no reason to learn how to read if there was nothing to read. Uh, If books were so expensive that you couldn't afford them anyhow, why learn how to read? So uh, illiteracy was huge. the, the most of, the, uh, of the, the people who learned how to read were mostly aristocrats. They had their prayer books, and they learned how to read so they could read their prayer books. Uh, but most of the common folk never learned how to read. Uh, the people who joined the priesthood uh, were expected to know a minimum so they could say Mass, and they could uh, uh, more or less read the, the ritual and they knew by heart the the Lord's Prayer and the creed on the Ten Commandments and that was basically what was required uh, now when when just before i mean in the middle ages there are universities that centers of learning and those are very important i mean the University of Paris was was the center of of Western theology, but there were not places to train uh, clergy uh, Mostly most of the people who actually went to the university were already ordained. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was really people who were interested in exploring more about uh, the truth of God, about uh, the, uh, the meaning of reality uh, to philosophize and so on. And they were very good; they were very good. But they were not there in order to learn how to be pastors, in order to learn how to lead a church. That that was not where they went. Uh, so what happens in the in the at the time of the Reformation? Is that then you begin having some universities that are connected with the reformers, and I think obviously the main case uh, is uh, the University of Wittenberg, where uh, uh, where Luther was uh, was teaching when uh, the Reformation began, uh, and it was founded uh, by uh, the uh, the ruler there, who was called an Elector, the Elector of Saxony, uh, and and he. Uh, he founded it not in order to create to reform anything, but just because he wanted his city to be important too, and everybody had universities, so he's gonna have university. And in comes Luther, and then come some others that, that that follow him, and then this university becomes a center for reformation, and the 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 impact of those schools is incredible. I mean, uh, when uh, when Philip Melanchthon, who went there there uh, to teach uh, shortly after after Luther began being one of the leading voices in the university, uh, he got to the point where he had lectures where thousands of people attended. And I imagine with no loudspeakers, he must have had quite a voice, but anyhow, thousands of people attending. Uh, In in Geneva, where Calvin was, the procedure was almost opposite. I mean, the church was reformed, and then Calvin decided that we have to have an academy here to train people. And so they developed the academy of Geneva, and that was on the fundamental because when in England, uh, uh, Mary Tudor, you known know as Bloody Mary, uh, came to power and began persecuting the Protestants. Those who went into exile, many of them ended up in Geneva, studying at the academy, and they went back and brought Calvinism back with them to to England. So. I'm talking too much, but it's the history, the story is, is quite quite uh, uh, interesting, very interesting. Yeah. And by the way, there were no seminaries, nothing called seminaries, until after the Reformation. And they were a Catholic invention. If you want to talk more about that, we can also talk about that.
2: Mm you know when we look at uh the 16th century like you said we are seeing this blossom so that uh you know you, you begin to have you know you think of for example the Geneva academy uh in, with Calvin and uh they are training uh future ministers not just in, to, for Geneva but uh to to go into other parts of Europe uh for the first time you've you've got uh, Requirements for ordination, for example, uh, Calvin's successor Theodore Beza it, it proves instrumental uh, in, in this way. Uh, we could go on. You've mentioned even, um, you know, the Roman Catholic or in the Counter Reformation movement mm-hmm. and the seminaries that then were birthed at that time. Maybe we could skip ahead and and then and, and contrast a little with uh, the Enlightenment period and really the post Enlightenment period. Uh, you write at one point uh, that uh, when when we look at the, the modern university, um, you, you you'll notice that uh, theology all of a sudden has to justify its own presence. Uh, it, it's not uh, assumed anymore that uh, that there could be a, a theological approach to education, or that even theology as a discipline um, is you know has a. A legitimate place. Uh, you, you go on and say how how ironically theology, which centuries earlier had given birth to universities, uh, now had to defend its place within those those universities. Uh, very ironic. Um, maybe you could comment for a minute on what why is this happening and and what does it have to do with uh, the perception towards theology itself uh, you know how, how is theology now being viewed as a science in light of say the historical critical method, uh, you know the the uh, the agenda of a, a type of objectivity? How is that affecting uh, not just uh, education but but uh, theology itself?
0: Well, I think what happens uh, with uh, uh, modernity is that uh, uh, the physical sciences are the, are the exact and measurable sciences, uh, progress enormously. And they work. You, know, you begin studying how um, atoms react to one another, and then eventually you some into interesting things you can do with them. And then you can even eventually break them up and produce energy, all kinds of stuff. So, so it works. Uh, And that leads to what you just mentioned, the emphasis in objectivity, which means uh, the ideal scholar is one who does not put himself or herself into what they're studying. Uh, They are just looking at things as they are. Uh, Now, uh, let me begin by saying that that is a rather uh, uh, unattainable (laughs) dream, because as was very much shown by by philosophers at the same time uh, knowledge itself involves somehow a relationship between the known and the knower so so you you have to you put your your stamp on whatever it is you're studying, no matter how objective it is, because those are the questions you ask and so on but but the the, the, the core of the way the universities began thinking of themselves was of training people to practice to study practice teach. Uh, these uh, 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 objective, provable uh, things, provable by empirical methods. Mm. And here comes theology that has been there all the time, but says, no, no, this, this, this book has authority because it has authority. And we can prove that it has authority. Uh, and eventually, i are going to start developing arguments to prove that it has authority, but there is really no argument that can prove that this book has authority. There is no argument to prove the existence of God in a way that nobody can deny. You can, you can prove uh, the power of gravity. No. Uh, you can prove uh, the power within the atom, but you cannot prove the existence of God. You can, you can prove that it makes sense, but actually any, any God that you can prove is no longer too small a God. So by definition, God is improvable. Now you, you have that school in the middle of a growing institution, where um, you have a different approach to reality and at that point how do you justify your presence there and it becomes a, b- a big issue because very often what happens and what happened especially during the 19th and uh, good deal of the 20th century was that the way theologians tried to, uh, to prove that they belong there was by themselves trying to be objective and there's a value to that you have people studying scripture and saying no I, I'm not studying this as a believer I'm studying it as a as a historian, a, 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 an analyst of uh, traditional ancient cultures, and, and I'm going to see what this says, and so on, but I'm not going to put myself into it. I'm not going to say what this means for today. So you had that tendency going on. Uh, at the same time that uh, generally, and this is quite a, a, an oversimplification, but in the 19th century, there was a great contrast between the Protestant and Catholic traditions that was probably even greater than in the 16th century. And it had to do with how each of those two traditions are related to this modernity you're talking about. Uh, the, the Catholic Church absolutely rejected it. Pius IX issued a syllabus of, 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 horror, of errors, in other words, a list of errors. And those included all kinds of things that today we take for granted, but to him, those were absolute errors that the church could not tolerate. Protestants tend to go the other way. Protestants tried to, to, to try to prove that Protestantism is the modern form of Christianity. Uh, Protestantism is the culmination of all of the history, even to this day. Uh, you will take a person like Hegel and all the influence that he had in later the theologians. Uh, we somehow are the culmination and this is all uh, very good. That the world is changing, uh, and and the, the result was there was this great conflict between Protestants and Catholics that did not exist even in the 16th century when they were killing each other. But now they have this completely different view of the world, a completely different view of of, uh, of uh, uh, science and so on. So I'm I'm talking too much. I'm going off uh, of the subject. But basically, what happened, what has happened, is that then. Uh, schools of theology and theologians in general have to decide how they are going to justify their position in a university. Mm. And that becomes a very, very difficult issue that to, to this day is being uh, uh, debated and discussed and shaped.
2: You know, there seems to be, uh, in the history you just, uh, you just chronicled, there seems to be just an evolving uh divide that grows bigger and bigger between the academy and the church uh you've mentioned this a number of times when you've talked about uh the the rise of specialization uh in, in which uh in prior centuries the the pastor may have been the most educated person uh in, in an area in, in a town or a village or, or even a city uh that changes. Uh, so that uh, th- they 're no longer the the uh, experts and and you discuss how a, a lot of that changes because of how education is approached um, not so much in terms of re- of a renaissance uh, across the disciplines but a uh, a growing emphasis on a, on a compartmentalization uh, and, and this mm-hmm. is something that that uh, you argue occurs even in uh, theological curriculum, even at the seminary level, uh, not just the university level, uh, maybe you could speak to this for a moment. What, first of all, why this specialization, and, and what were some of the, maybe the negative effects on this divide between church and academy?
0: Well, first of all, the, the main reason, I think, for that uh, uh, specialization is the explosion of knowledge. Uh, Back in the 16th century, it's still possible to dream about the the Renaissance, uh, 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 Italian Renaissance is called uh, the universal man, somebody who knows everything. And there was even one person who was not only a scholar, but he also was a great athlete and all kinds of things. I mean, he could do everything. But the way that knowledge has become specialized in every field is because there's so much to be known. You, you take medicine, I mean, and somebody can spend their whole lives uh, uh, studying uh, the eyes, and even that, they cannot get to know everything that can be known about the eyes. So specialization is important. It provides progress, at least in those disciplines. The problem with specialization is that it tends to lose the uh, holistic view that's necessary for life. The last thing you want as a patient is to have an ophthalmologist and a gastroenterologist and an auto-rhenolaryngologist and whatever else who don't talk to each other about you because you are not any of those things. You're all not together. And part of, what, of what's being lost with specialization is that wider view Uh and that happens in every field. It happens also in theology. You can spend your whole life studying the epistle to the Hebrews and not know all that has been written and all that can be said about the Hebrews. But if you cannot somehow relate that to the entire biblical tradition, to the, to the life of the church, to the actual living of so people, something is missing. Mm. Now, what you're doing as a student of Hebrews is important is crucial because that's how we learn more about our Hebrew sex but we need to have also ways of bringing all that together even if it's at it can never be at such a depth uh, and detailed knowledge as that scholar on the Epistle Hebrews has but it has to be serious it has to ha- it has to be aware of what that scholar is doing and saying but at a level where somehow you bring it together almost like you have a general practitioner in medicine. Mm. And a pastor, in any way, is a general practitioner. Uh, you, are asked, you have to preach, you have to interpret Bible, you have to counsel, uh, you have to uh, participate in some legal issues, including marriages. Okay, so, so you are a, a practitioner, but you need to know also at least who, who the specialists are and where you can get those things and use they are teaching. And that's that's where we have not been able to do that in theological education. I think we need to do it. Mm. Many years ago, I was teaching in an institution where one of the requirements was at the end of the of the seminary studies, a student was to write what they called an integrating paper, where they put together everything they had learned. Well, it was clear to me that most of us couldn't do that ourselves in the faculty. <laughs> because so many of us were specialists that, that we didn't know anything about anything else. <laughs> so <laughs> at some point you have to have that, that integration. You know? Now that's one thing. The other thing is, how does a school of theology measure itself? By what, by what measure? Does it measure itself by the respect it has in academia or does it measure itself by the impact it has on the church and society? And both are important. But very often, what happens uh, uh, is that, that uh, the, the School of Theology uh, tends, if it's in the, in the middle of the university, particularly research university, the School of Theology uh, feels pressure to justify itself more before the academia than before the church and society.
2: Mm-hmm christ so you are
0: now you let me preaching
2: yeah no no <laughs> i i i really uh preach on preach on brother preach on uh, you know it's you you uh you're starting to sound like a reformer and I think rightly so um rightly so you know i, I want to to close with a um and, and I'll give you a chance to to uh, elaborate on this I want to close with uh a, a couple of sentences that you've written uh that that Really uh, capitalize on what you just said. Uh, these uh, I, I've circled these sentences because I, I just was so struck by them. Uh, at one point, you say a large portion of books and other material published today on biblical and theological subjects have little usefulness for ministerial training or practice or for the life of the church at large, one of the reasons is that much of such literature has been a response not to the needs of the church or to the society in general, but rather to the need of their authors to publish something that will advance their academic careers. Wow. I mean, uh, this uh, this passage, uh, and it, it you know it, it so summarizes what you just said. this passage uh, puts things in proper perspective, I think it's a sobering uh, these words are sobering in so many ways. Uh, they remind us as uh, in, in seminaries or in universities and academics everywhere uh, that they remind us of what our real priorities should be. Uh, now we 've just been discussing the divide between church and academy. And how so often, even in the seminary world, uh, it's it's not the 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 church that uh, that uh, we're seek- we, we have in our in our vision, but but rather our own uh, our own agendas to to advance ourselves in academia. I mean, you on on the one hand, I, I think our listeners need to hear this from you yourself, because uh, on the one hand, they they'll, they'll look at the many books you've written and the illustrious car- uh, career. That that you've had, uh, you, you know, authoring uh, across uh, history itself, and uh, the, the teaching posts you've had on and on and on, uh, and, and so they they may expect you to you know herald the you know academia in the sense of of the individual, but here here you take us back to uh, prior to the modern era to say we we have something to learn, whether it's an Augustine, whether whether it's a, a reformer. Whoever it is, you're saying we have something to learn here that uh, we've drifted, that we're, we're no longer serving the church with our careers, but, but our careers in and of themselves. Can you comment on this? How, how has this affected you personally?
0: Well, uh, quite so, quite so. Let me tell you, uh, just talking about writing, for instance, just to take one example. I have always said that schools teach us how to write badly. I remember I must have been about third, fourth grade. And obviously because of the background in my house that I talked to you about earlier, for some some paper, something I had to write at school, I wrote this convoluted thing. And the teacher was praised what I had written. I took it back and showed it to my dad and he looked at it and I said, OK, now what do you mean by this? And I found that I could say in a few words, simple words, and said, now why do you have to say all that if you can say it this way? (laughs) (laughs) And that sort of stopped me. me. Why all these convoluted sentences? Hmm. And and the thing is, you you learn in school to write to impress your teachers rather than to communicate to others. And the, the epitome of that is a dissertation that you write in order to impress three people. Uh, many dissertations are never read by anybody but, but but the three or four people who are the basically main readers. Mm. I'm I'm probably your dad because after all this gotta read the thing you wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but how do we learn how to say things in a way that people can understand? Mm. I always say in about books in Spanish and about theology They are very good, fantastic, huge academic books in Spanish, in biblical studies and theology, but hardly anybody can read them. And there are thousands of books that everybody can read, but they probably shouldn't. Mm. And now how do you get the people who can write those books that are the, are the, the, the... scholarly that really know what they're talking about I can get those people to write to the people who really need them rather than just to their peers or to the or, or to the mm-hmm. uh, 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 you know to the group of that, that uh, the other academics and so on and I think that that's part of what we have to do and I think in theology we have to do that because after all the place where theology becomes relevant is in the life of the church and how the church relates to the world and how What do you mean when you uh, preach the gospel? What is the gospel? Uh, What does the gospel mean in in, in all the various situations of life? Uh, What does the gospel mean in the political uh, discussions uh, going on today? Uh, And frankly, uh, we need to to prepare people to do that. Not despising true, serious uh, scholarship and study. Uh, and I think simplifying doesn't mean adulterating. Mm.
2: But anyhow, that's you know one of the, the things that uh, I appreciate about you, Husto, is that uh, you've done just that. Uh, when it comes to the books you've written, uh, whether it's the story of Christianity, your more recent book on Augustine, or even your more academic your more academic books on uh, theological education or the history of Christian thought. Uh, no matter what book it is, uh, I always walk away uh, understanding uh, how theology and history itself can better equip uh, not only those in academia, but ultimately those in the church, the very people of God. So uh, thank you. Uh, Thank you for, for that service to the church. I hope our listeners hear that and uh, those out there who are students, uh, I hope you are listening to what Busto is, is describing here and make it a priority in your own writing and teaching ministry. Busto, thank you so much for joining us on the Credo podcast today.
0: Well, thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure.
1: Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine, with articles on key doctrines of the faith, and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.